Have you ever listened to the pod and thought it would be awesome if Jen stopped being nerdy about movies for 60 seconds and talked about your business instead? Well, my friends, you're in luck. Watch with Jen is looking for sponsors. Do you own or run a theater, bookstore, film fest, website, school, physical media firm, pod, streaming channel, or small business that might like to advertise on Watch With Jen? Whether you're interested in sponsoring one episode or several, please reach out. You can get a hold of me at contact at filmintuition.com. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. This week's guest is a very good friend and one of the bright lights of film Twitter, Priscilla Page. Priscilla Page is a gifted writer who covers cars, movies, and cars and movies, focusing mostly on your dad's favorites, actioners, thrillers, westerns, etc. Some of her bylines include Haggerty, Auto Week, Empire Magazine, The Guardian, Polygon, Birth, Movies, Death, and Brightwall Dark Room. You can keep up with her work through her Patreon at patreon.com slash Priscilla Page. So Priscilla, thank you for coming back. I had so much fun talking Christopher McQuarrie and all of uh, your car movie favorites. We dove into Jack Reacher and Dead Reckoning and Tom Cruise as not crazy, committed to his craft. And that was wonderful. And I'm really glad we decided to kind of divide it into two episodes. So we're going back in time further to John Frankenheimer, master director Talk to me about Frankenheimer overall. Do you remember like a first movie that stood out to you or your earliest impressions or any favorites? What are your I, thoughts on Frankenheimer? Uh, I cannot remember the first Frankenheimer movie I saw. I can't either, actually. What the fuck? I know. What Was kind of question is that, Jen? Yeah. Jesus, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm unprepared for this question. Um, it. It was probably either Grand Prix or, or maybe Birdman of Alcatraz. That uh-huh. feels like a weird one. That would no. be an interesting first. You know, I was looking at his films and I think probably, let me know, jump in. It's a wild filmography. It is. Yeah. It is started full out of bangers. Um, I'm actually not. Assistant directing to Sidney Lumet. And then uh, moving out into the world of film because live TV was kind of, uh, you know, it was really in there for a little bit in the 50s. And then he decided to move on. He's somebody who fell in love with cinema at a young age. I was reading uh, at the age of seven. He was a very introverted child, but would go to the movies every weekend with relatives. And it kind of helped him sort of escape into film for sure. I was thinking about what the first one, like I didn't actually see the Island of Dr. Moreau in the theater. The first one I remember seeing in the theater was Ronin. And I also saw Reindeer Games. So those two I did see in the theater, uh, but those were my only Frankenheimers that way. And then 
I had seen his other movies uh, in the 90s. I was a big classic movie buff. And I remember tracking down, you know, some earlier films like Manchurian Candidate, of course. Obviously. The Train is one of my favorites. Oh, my God. It's so good. I do not stop talking about like and it's one he really wasn't sure that he wanted to direct because it was coming right after a couple. Somebody else was having some like beef with Burt Lancaster, who was, you know, a force and mm-hmm. hard to get it's a nice way of putting with, it uh, creatively <laughs> sometimes. But he yeah. worked with Lancaster a couple times. And so uh, was the right dude for it. I love it. It's him with those wide angle lenses, all the same stuff that we were going to see his command of action, love of history. And uh, yeah, but I love that Birdman of Alcatraz might have been one of your earlier ones. I feel like it had to be Ronan. It just doesn't make sense. And that just feels like a good gateway drug into Frankenheimer. Yeah. But I don't think I've ever seen one of his movies in theaters like Okay. Like nine, 98. I don't know if I would have been allowed to see that movie because <laughs> my parents were strict. Oh, gotcha. But I mean, I could watch all kinds of insane TV. But anyway, that's a different conversation. That is a um, whole other episode, basically. <laughs> yeah. Ronan, I, I actually saw Ronan with my parents and I can't remember what my brother and friends were doing, um, but I went back. I know I saw that movie in the theater like maybe two or three times because it was oh, just I'm so such jealous. a rush. And uh, Reindeer Games, I think we went to like the midnight show of that with my friends um, because this is bad, but like I've I vaguely remember we were roasting one of my friends right before it at a pizza place because he weirdly <laughs> wanted to put like chicken and pineapple and just I don't know what oh, was no. going on with him that day. But oh, like no. the whole night, like, you know, reindeer games, something would happen on the screen and be like, there's Chris with the damn pineapple. And we just kept like, <laughs> so that's my earliest memory Brutal. of reindeer games was uh, roasting my poor friend, Chris. Chris, if you're listening, I'm sorry, buddy. But uh, but yeah, Chris getting called out again for pineapple on pizza like yes. twenty years later. I know. <laughs> Glad she has a podcast. No. <laughs> yes, but Frankenheimer. You know, do you remember when you first saw Grand Prix? Um, I think it was maybe five or six years ago. Okay. Um, and I quickly. I feel like I quickly understood that it was probably the, I think it's the best racing movie ever made. For sure. Um, yep. I think Ford v. Ferrari sort of reaches the heights of Grand Prix almost for me. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think I'd have to watch them back to back to see how they stack up. I'm not really like a ranker though. I don't need to I know. be like, this is one's number one and this one's number two. <laughs> What I don't get is every time a new film comes out by a director, you know, the dudes of Twitter or Letterboxd, like, this is the official ranking. Oh, my and God. And then they'll yeah. ask, you know, what is your rank? And it's like, you know, I, or when I say I love the Godfather, just the first one, it's like, can we just say Godfather? <laughs> and it's the whole thing, guys. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. It's okay. It's you don't okay. have to make your movies fight. No, exactly. <laughs> or that that prompt that goes around like, here's four and, you know, which one makes it or which one do you take away? I don't care. Yeah. Who are you taking out behind the barn and shooting? Like, what? <laughs> Can't they all live? Like, yeah, which chain can't <laughs> be on movie? And it's like, how dare you? Yes. 
Yes. Well, Grand Prix, I saw for the first time mid-pandemic. I remember I recorded it off TCM and I think I started it, but I'd heard, oh, it's three hours, you know, and it's going to be slow or all the things you hear about it. I started it. I don't think I moved. Like I was on uh, as soon as I hit play, I'm like, you know, this is it. I am in for the day. I had movie club. I think I logged in late. I just sort of bulldozed uh, poor, you know, Blake, Jordan, Jed, and Travis, who are not <laughs> car movie people and had like deer and headlights look. Because so I'm like, have you guys seen Grand Prix? And that's all I wanted to talk about for like. Had 20... none of them seen it? None of them had seen it. None of them are car guys. And so, and, you know, and Jordan and Blake are so sweet. They're like, oh, yes, we'll see it. You know, damn well. Like, I don't know (laughs) if they've watched this movie, but they're they're just sweet. And, um, yeah. They should see it. I mean, they're they're missing out. I don't think, see, this is my whole thing about car movies is that I don't think, it's like sports movies we were talking about. You don't need to be a sports person to enjoy movies about them. Um, Grand Prix just rules to watch like it doesn't <laughs> one of the you don't... best opening like first acts of a movie ever it's gorgeous yeah and um i feel like Saul Bass really adds to i mean he's i i was reading about this last night he was super involved like not yeah. just with the title sequence but editing some of the chases and um reworking them so that he could include the split screens and they're just like I realized I rewatched the opening last night and everything in the opening is um, leading up to the race. Obviously, once the race starts, all bets are off. But when it's just Saul Bass doing his thing, it's like all close ups. There are no establishing shots. It is. And, and it's the, so cool. The way it's cut to like the roar of the engine is just thrilling. And then instead of like just one split screen, you have like 10. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he plays with uh he plays with time in an interesting way. So some of sometimes when the split screen happens, you'll be watching something that's happening in the moment yes. and then a flashback. Um yeah, like Scott Stoddard walking the race. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, what did I want to say about? I I feel like, and the voiceovers, which you pointed yes. out in your piece, which I thought was really good. You were talking about how, you know, Thank like you. the yes. <laughs> oh, her piece is extraordinary. I'm going to be linking to everything. But oh god, um, what I loved is you were saying, you know, because. I think you quoted James Garner calling it like pure soap opera or mm-hmm. essentially like the plot overall, you're in it for the races, you care and everything, but you're into it. But in order for the races themselves not to feel static, we suddenly get into the driver's heads or we hear what they're thinking as they're doing this, like the number of times he has to shift. And you say something like Garner's voice, something like every th- 1.3 seconds or something there's a different shift it's crazy yeah. yeah i think uh i think he says i can't remember the total number of gear shifts that happen yes. during a race but i think he says it happens like every three seconds yes <laughs> which seems so i mean everything about it to me seems bonkers but um it's fun to watch <laughs> it really is yeah. and we were saying last time that racing is not really fun to watch, but I love seeing it in movies. Yes, and, it's so um, cinematic. Yep. 
And reading about it is interesting, but for some reason, just watching it on TV is like, all right, I'm fine. Like, yeah, they're <laughs> this is uninvolving in circle. And I think it's important we start in Monte Carlo because, like they say right away, you know, they are driving super fast down these just everyday streets, which is what racing should be. Also, the way that they are like realists about how dangerous it is, which is you're in like essentially you're driving in a coffin, you know, you're surrounded yeah. by gasoline and you're strapped in. I can't even imagine the state of mind. Um just the ego and the narcissism and the the adrenaline and the love for that that would make somebody it's a different personality type yeah yeah i it's i it's completely foreign to me but yes. um but fascinating because mm -hmm. there's something about being in the car that and racing that you know not that i would know but it's sort of both as, as a person who does like to drive fast but not like that <laughs> no but you're fast but like in control yes yeah like in a straight line <laughs> yeah <laughs> priscilla i've only killed 20 people but it could have been more if i was out of control no i'm just kidding yeah exactly um <laughs> but yeah i've never quite felt the need to race or be mm -hmm. in a race car or be anywhere near a racetrack but um there's something both zen about it and yeah. exhilarating and life-affirming. Um, I think it's Sarti who says at the beginning that you have to have, and he's basically predicting his own death, spoiler yes. alert, um, where he says it, you have to have a certain lack of imagination the where you cannot even fathom or picture yeah, Your you have death. to just be part of the machine almost or part of the the mechanism. Like yeah. I am I am the engine or I am part of it. Yeah. Cuz um the minute you start questioning things, uh you don't want to think too hard. I mean, there's that thing of um I'm somebody who's related to four generations of military and they say they kind of drill that out of you because if you're going to start thinking too hard in the middle of war, like you can't be doing that. You have to just has to be automatic. And yeah. that's what these guys are doing. Yeah. But I also think there's something I kind of respect that mentality in a way because yeah. it really is just about living in the moment and not thinking sure. about the future and all the bad things that can happen, which is what I excel at. <laughs> Yes. Um, I do warriors. not have the mentality no. for that. <laughs> I know. And just listening to you and talking about Zen and the gear shift and just kind of getting into it, sort of like you get into a rhythm. And now I'm going to really lose people. But Priscilla knows I love to crochet as like when I'm watching movies, because otherwise I'll sit there and take way too many notes. And it's sort of something like you can do and you don't even realize you're doing it. Like it's busy work for your hands or you yeah. can just kind of get into a rhythm. Sometimes I'll think or be able to unlock something because I'm not thinking too hard about, you know, paragraph three. What what did I really want to say in that essay? And so I can only imagine it might be something like that. Um, not that I know a lot of race car people are listening now and they're like, this chick just compared crocheting. What the fuck she's to, talking about. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like unsubscribe. No, but you know, just kind of getting into the zone is what we're yeah, saying. like a meditative practice. Yeah. But also yeah. um, you know, the discipline of needing to shift, uh, needing to do a stitch, needing to do something with your hands. Yeah.
or your feet. Like when they show talking about uh, when we were speaking on Jack Reacher and you said, you know, all those Chevelles, they were tearing apart to get these shots. Well, we see like uh, the character of Scott Stoddard's feet, um, you know, kind of and James pushing Carter, the pedals. Yes. Hitting those pedals and, you know, just how how it would go. And it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that opening, coming back to that opening, it really luxuriates in the details, which I think is cool. Like, um, you can tell, I keep, I keep reading Frankenheimer saying that he, before he was a director, he was involved in racing somehow. Yes. But Mm -hmm. somebody, as somebody wrote that there is no evidence of this that exists. (laughs) (laughs) I I was finding it a little suspicious, too. Like he said, uh, amateur racing or he was interested. But then when you actually look at his past, you're like, when did that happen? Where? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Print the legend. That's Frankenheimer. Exactly. Yes. But I think but you can tell, though, that he it's a film that could only be made by someone who loves racing and loves cars. Passionate. Um, It is a very loving film. And even though it has this like documentary feel, there is also that element of it somehow com- combines this realism with like a dreaminess. Um, yeah, it's you can a little feel, bit, yeah, existential yeah. a little. And also, it's, you know, Frankenheimer loves getting into people's psyche, but not like making it so, um, so overt like it just kind of flows in with the it's like a documentary but you're also in these people's mindsets a little bit yeah but i think you can also feel that you're in frankenheimer's fantasy yes (laughs) yeah um and then saul bass i think i mean frankenheimer obviously had to be on board with it but i think saul bass kind of brings this um one of the races i think i talk about this in my piece where it's the whole race is really about, um, I think the character's name is Louise, the Eva Marie Saint character. Yes, Miss Ferguson. I remember that much, yes. Yeah, where she's she's falling in love with racing as she's falling in love with Sarti. Um, yeah, Eve's Montand, yep. Yeah, and it's just, there's this, everything is sort of dissolving into each other. And there are, I don't know, there's got to be a a better term for this, but like there's like extended dissolves. It is so beautiful. It's, yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it's sensual. Like it is someone who really gets into the, the sensuality or, you know, I think the tendency would want to be to lean too hard into the masculine. And yeah. this is a movie that, and you think Frankenheimer too is a dude and a guy who went after all, like a million women, like Steve Martin in his memoir. <laughs> he he stole one away from Steve, and then he went after Steve's wife. And you know, Frank oh, I didn't know there was more than one. Oh my God, there were two. He went after Victoria Tennant, who said no. And yes, yeah, so come um, on, man. <laughs> it was like, come on, Frankenheimer. So there, you know, this is someone who is definitely the macho dude. But there's this. Uh, embrace of the sensuality, the feminine, and just the ethereal beauty of of life. And like you said, that immediacy of living in the moment, that's pretty seductive. Yeah. It's also very pretty. I mean... <laughs> it is. It is pretty. Yeah. It was... I think it was Frankenheimer's first color film, and it, it really is. looks glorious, I think. Yeah. 
you can tell he you know by that point too because the train incorporated those wide angle lenses and and this movie does as well and and Ronan we're going to talk about also does and it's like someone who found kind of their style and really like this couldn't have been his first movie ever he wouldn't have had that um amount of control or that amount of like um I think ambition for okay this is what we've done well in the other pictures but we want to take it further like this is someone at the height of his powers yeah yeah um what was the other point oh when we were talking about James Garner saying that the movie was pure soap opera mm-hmm. um I and sort of how it leans into this like it leans into kind of getting into Louise's psyche and yeah. showing sort of this feminine sensual mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of the stuff that Mc, Steve McQueen hated I mean he had a lot of reasons to hate the movie um yeah if he would have said yes we wouldn't ones. have had Garner yep well I think I I, this is another thing that it's hard for for me to figure out what's true <laughs> because I read somewhere that Frankenheimer actually wanted an unknown for the role Ooh. that went to James Garner. And then I think well, the way Garner tells it is that McQueen lost it because he was um, the nice way. I don't guess it's not maybe a nice way to put it, but that he was abusing his body at the time. Okay. And the producer saw that he was drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah. And so they gave the role to Garner. So I'm not really sure what's yeah. true, but um, I, yeah. I I feel like what's, James. Yeah. What's hard too sometimes is like Garner might've heard one version of the events and then like to protect an actor's ego, they might tell that guy, well, this is what happened or so you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at the time, I think everybody wanted McQueen. So yes. it's interesting that they did not go with him. Yeah, But I love it because I feel, and maybe you feel this way too, I feel like James Garner is to me what Steve McQueen is to everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I will say that. I mean, McQueen is cool. You know, there's no getting around it. He's wonderful in, you know, The Great Escape and all of those pictures. But I there's something about just like the earnest good guyness. Like, I don't know, Steve McQueen he could kind of embrace the bastard a little bit. Oh, yeah. and, and I mean, you can see that like uh, Garner tries it on a little bit. Like he goes after his teammate's wife who, you know, is um, going through something and they're, you know, I don't yeah, want to give away the entire plot. She's but, going through some shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think if it had been McQueen, I don't know if we would have been as emotionally invested or won over by the character. Yeah, Garner has, I don't know, I feel like he has everything Steve McQueen has, but plus other things. So like, yes. <laughs> like he's got, he's effortlessly, effortlessly cool and he's a cool car guy and he's a great actor. But then I also feel like he's just a mensch. I mean, yeah. every story I read about him, uh, he just sounds wonderful. But he also has a softness to him mm-hmm. that McQueen didn't always have. No, well, like, you know, um, a guy letting, you know, that line in Pulp Fiction going, you know, your buddy taking your girl out to a movie. You know, I think if Garner takes your girl out to a movie, unless you've 
like in the movie, you have some shit going on, stuff might happen. <laughs> but I think McQueen's taking your girl out to the movie, you're getting a new girl, basically, is what we're saying, maybe. Yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's it's some the Dow Steve. No. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know. I think I just find Garner a little bit more emotionally accessible. I think that's yes. a better way to put it. I think there's a coolness to McQueen and not just we're not talking about those gorgeous you know eyes but no there's a coolness yeah. and a an inaccessibility I think was the word you were using and Garner yeah, is yeah. a little bit more accessible yeah and I think the entire cast is really good in this um you know Antonio Sabato is great you know they're mm-hmm. all just wonderful Eve Montand is is good I think it's also a difficult role for Eva Marie Saint but um she is tremendous and this was you know after like North by Northwest and so she's playing someone it's cool to see a middle-aged woman who is asserting her okay this is what I want I'm busy too I don't necessarily need a full-time boyfriend always married but there's an understanding or it's an you know um it's a complex role for the mid-60s Hollywood yeah yeah but I think both of those characters want something more for sure in the end which is yeah, what makes they're kind of trapped it's sad it's so tragic yeah yes they're well, trapped I in mean... that coffin uh of the car and like you said it's you know an allegory almost for them yeah for sure yeah and i going back again to the soap opera comment but i feel like and how mcqueen hated that aspect of it and then he like made lamont and and i wouldn't say retaliation there was definitely like a one-sided rivalry though oh like for sure between mcqueen and garner and i think at the same time McQueen was trying to get uh, a racing picture off the ground with John Sturgis, I think. I believe you're right. Yep. And then it didn't ha- it didn't happen. Uh, and so then he didn't talk to Garner for two years, mm-hmm. which is normal. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But I think it's realistic. Yeah. I, I think those people. I I don't know that much about racing, but I've read books like Go Like Hell and stuff, and mm-hmm. it seems really accurate to how they With live their, their lives. Yeah, it's like a heightened way of living. Um, yes. <laughs> no, but it yeah, it's true. The personality, like, and they have to be able to kind of turn it off and on and be in the moment and. This isn't how like you and I worrying about paying our bills or like going grocery shopping live mm. our lives. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The thing that I read last night was that um, out of 33 professional race car drivers who participated in the shooting of Grand Prix, 18 of them were killed on the racing circuit within just a few years of the film's release. Oh, my God. Dude. So... I mean, I know it's the profession and I remember years ago, for whatever reason, like within a year, I was reviewing three or four uh, documentaries about race car drivers. I, oh, yeah. I would have to go back and, you know, that this was an extremely deadly era, but is it still just highly regarded among racing enthusiasts? Do they look at it as kind of like, was it a cursed movie, like Rebel Without a Cause where everyone died oh, you yeah. know, or anything like that? I think it was just normal back then. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the creepiest thing was that um, I think his character's name is Barlini, right? Yes. Okay. So the real 
a lot of the race car drivers they were based on actually worked on the movies. Mm-hmm. So I think Phil Hill is supposed to be like the Pete Aaron character is based on Phil Hill and he was in the movie. And I think he, I don't know if he was Garner's stunt driver or somebody else's stunt driver, but um, anyway, so for Barlini, the real guy was named Lorenzo Bandini Mm. and he, I want to say it was like a year or two later, he helped uh, orchestrate the crash in the movie uh, at Monaco and okay. he died in the same place like a year later. Oh my God. And so, but I mean, that was when I read Go Like Hell, I mean, that was just kind of, it just seemed like the norm of where people, yeah. I know, I feel like there was one team that drove her Ferrari early oh on. Oh my God. And they there all was got. A- wiped out an entire ferrari team pretty much yeah there was a documentary that i saw years ago about that it was just devastating to see all those drivers yeah um yeah i want to say that might have been in the 50s if i'm right um but yeah i can't yeah it was early on but it was horrible i mean yes my mom was super paranoid because her uh mom got readers digest condensed books and there was this one that like haunted her for life and so for to this day my mom was like you can never buy a green car and it was because uh, i think it was called the green helmet it was um and it became like a, a like about the jinx color the green uh of race cars and oh, no. something and I guess they made it into a movie, I think a British movie about race cars in green or something. And so to this day, fuck? my mom is like, never get a green car, Jen. Just never. <laughs> I had yeah. no idea. Actually, yeah. British racing green is one of my favorite colors. And now okay. what do I do? <laughs> I don't know. You're like, I'm so conflicted. <laughs> I know. I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably getting facts wrong because it was so many years ago, but we'll have to Google it. That's I think it's called scary. the Green Helmet, something like that. Okay, well, I can't find, I feel like they were called like the Spring Team or something, but I can't find, that it's going to be impossible to Google. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a bunch of weird like Fashion Week results, Just <laughs> 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 not what I want. So it's in the yeah. book, but I don't think I have my book in here. Gotcha. Um, anyway, I'll look up the Green have Helmet later. Have you seen this on the big screen at all? No, actually, I think they screened it. Somebody was showing it a couple years ago and I wanted to go, but I didn't. I think okay. I was working that night. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if they show it again and a huge, I'll have to fly out. And we'll just, we're going. We're totally going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After that guy yelled at you. I he didn't know, yell. But... No, but he's not alone. <laughs> so many people, whenever I bring up Grand Prix, they're like, well, Jen. You should have seen it in 1966, like opening weekend, right at the Cinerama. But they're not saying like, I saw it and it was amazing. You would have loved it. Just like, that's the way to see it. And you missed. <laughs> and for so long, you fucking like, blew it. <laughs> fucking blew it. It was 15 years before I was born. But like, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard when you haven't been born yet. Like, what yeah. are you supposed to do? <laughs> I know. Or imagine if you were like born in 66. I mean, you're not going to that movie. Come on barely sentient what do you want from me yes (laughs) 
was trying to figure out how to lift my head up. Come on. I know. (laughs) Got a lot on my plate. (laughs) Um, The cameras. I mean, the technology that they use, they mount the cameras on the hood and uh, the cinematographers being like scared to do some of this stuff. So they had to use like remote control and um, it's amazing. James Garner did a lot of his own driving and was said to if he had gone into that instead of acting he would have been a natural I think is what you said yeah um I think the other actors only went to racing school for a few weeks and I don't think any of them cared for it um (laughs) but Garner was like in it to win it and he went to the Bob Bondurant racing school for like two months and um yeah he was like you said he was a natural like he just did a great job and he was very good at it And, um, I wanted to talk, oh, I did want to talk about the cameras too, which you brought up. Yeah. Okay. So this is one of my little rants that I do on, I think I've already done this for you on Twitter or you've already like, you had to bear witness to this, but, um, (laughs) I think like one of the things about Grand Prix that I, I feel one of the things that bothers me is that I feel like it's really underrated and un- people don't talk I about agree. how yeah it's it's a game changer mm-hmm. um even if you don't like the film like it's hard not to appreciate it from a technical perspective because yes. um the way that people used to shoot driving and cars was so shitty before that <laughs> I know the rear projection like have the yeah. actor move their hands constantly and I'm minding like, it, but this is an audio podcast. Very helpful. Yes. <laughs> I can see it, Jen. Okay. I understand. Um, <laughs> You're like, I appreciated to... the charades. Yes. <laughs> um, they used to undercrank it. So like they could be driving slow and then undercranking it would make it look faster. Um, and it just looked like ass. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I well, That's our poll quote. Before Grand Prix, cars look like ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do have to say, I do appreciate, like, I kind of like it when movies look fake. A little I bit. Think, it's fun. Yeah. I think it can be lovely. I love a matte painting that looks sort of, I don't want to use the word fake again. You know, the, it's flat or one dimensional. No, because I don't want to be derogatory. It I like I like it when it doesn't quality. look real. Okay. I think it's okay for movies not to look real. And I think it's okay to see somebody yeah, like just if sitting a still in a car and, and then are, like Yeah. It's like things use are your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I just think it's I kind of like it when it's like um Greta Gerwig talks about how she actually tries not to to aim for continuity like because it sort of adds something to the film like I don't know I don't need to watch a movie and feel like this is real life you know like I don't it's so it's cool to inhabit a dream space yes as long as it isn't like 100% distracting but you know like those stupid uh videos on YouTube about the errors like oh my gosh his shirt is a fraction more untucked in this shot. And it's like, guys, (laughs) nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Yeah, those guys can suck my dick. I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so anyway, I don't want to disparage like really old movies too much because I do kind of like that stuff. But from a perspective of a person who loves to see cars go fast in movies, like Grand Prix, I think it it changes. I mean, not just like I it think drove in the everything piece, forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the piece I wrote, it said, I said that it changed the way that we shoot cars and the way that we look at them. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Um, yeah. See, but yeah, they... writers, that's why you get things when we're just talking off the cuff, like cars look <laughs> like ass, but on the page, we can sell it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the poet in me telling yes. those YouTube guys to suck my dick. Yes. <laughs> um we're gonna get like a million comments <laughs> these chicks hate youtube yes that's you true actually <laughs> um except for asmr that's fine yeah we enjoy that a little bit <laughs> and that shit uh, is weird but it's nice um anyway sending you the the shining asmr it's like yeah we're still and i we're gonna be friends yes <laughs> um oh, yeah that was a good one i like yeah. I don't know. The role-playing ones are always so weird, but that one was funny. Yes. And good. We need to make an ASMR of, you know, talking about car movies. Is that what this <laughs> is? You know, every once in a while I'll hear from listeners. And I think at first they they think they're being funny. They go, yeah, mm-hmm. I go to sleep listening to you. And it's like, okay. But then if it gets weird, like, yeah, I go to sleep with you every night. And it's like, buddy, Ew. The, the joke is funnier just to you. Nobody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. That's super gross. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think my voice is too annoying for ASMR. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I'm cracking um, jokes. Yep. Yeah, I don't think it's calming, but uh um Grand Prix <laughs> is amazing. I also really love the score in the film. I mean it opens, oh, yeah. you know, with an overture and um, you know, back when movies used to do that. Yep. I mean, the whole thing is so stylish. Yes. Like from the Saul Bass stuff to there's an overture and an intermission. And like, I don't know, it kind of veers into almost, it's like a little bit arty. I don't know. The dream state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's but also it, just extremely kick-ass if you love cars. So everybody wins. Your um, highbrow <laughs> art movie fan is going to love it. And then um, your romance fan will love it because it's a little soap opera-y. Uh, your James Cameron tech heads are going to be enjoying the the cameras. And... Yeah, I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about the rigs and things that they came up with like specifically um and then i can shut the fuck up but um <laughs> cinematography is such a cool medium like i don't know much about you know i'm still learning but it's i love it yeah yeah i don't know i don't know shit either but yeah i like it and i like reading about it um and pretending i know things like <laughs> the difference between lenses or whatever <laughs> um but yeah, I think this was, I don't know if this was the first movie ever to use helicopters, but um, it's sort of like the proto drone, but it looks a lot better mm-hmm. and well, maybe not a lot better, but it looks cooler. Um, but they had camera cars that could go up to 150 miles per hour, 
And there was a guy, he's a, a former race car driver and he also built race cars, but he was named Bill Frick and he made a special rig for the cars where they could like mount the camera yes. on the front without tipping the car over. Which is, you know, especially at those high of speeds to be able to keep it steady and to film everything is amazing. Yeah. 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 And it is, it is like the first movie ever where the cars really are going at speed, I think. Yes. And at using those... remote control, like, so that way it would cut to James Garner driving back to the road. And they wouldn't, you know, before that, we would have to stop for a shot of like the road in motion. And no, like there, there's no tricks here. You're in that car and you are going at speed exactly like Priscilla said. Yeah, I think the cameraman, I don't know. I've heard different people get credited, like the cinematographer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it was a cameraman named Stevens. Um and I think you mentioned this earlier, how Frankenheimer asked him, how would you like to be the cameraman going at 180 <laughs> yes. miles per hour in a specifically built camera car while photographing the actual drivers on the Grand Prix circuit? And the guy said, it would scare the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah. So he's the one, I think, who created the, it was the a remote control mm -hmm. pan and tilt camera that they affixed to the right side of the car and they could move it forward to where the car was heading and then mm -hmm. back to sh show you the face of the driver. Um, and that way Stevens did not have to risk his life <laughs> No, because, for the film. I mean, I can't imagine like even James Garner uh, by the end of the movie, I think he was like a month without insurance or he was paying his own because he did, that car really did start on fire with him in it. And he said, I had to get out of that in a hurry. That could have gone disastrously <laughs> wrong, you know, like my goodness. Yeah. Like when you hear stories about like Chow Yun Fat, the back of his hair getting singed on hard boiled and oh my God. You know, like, God, if he would have fallen. But anyway, James Garner uh, doing <laughs> it without the insurance. I can't imagine Mrs. Garner or uh, family loving those Gigi. stories. Or maybe they didn't hear those <laughs> stories until like, oh yeah, baby, it's fine, you know, and then and then later there was no insurance like you were doing this <laughs> then you hear what really happened yeah. um yeah <laughs> i've heard totally stories safe yeah i've heard stories like that about tom cruise going back to reacher you know like mm -hmm. having a hard time getting insured for the movies yeah but uh Oof. but yeah um but i think like the good news is that they ended up and this is actually, I feel like Frankenheimer is relatively safe when it comes to these things. Yeah. Like for as much of an adrenaline junkie as he seems to be. Mm -hmm. um, oh, he he's not as good. No. He's not as reckless as Friedkin was, for example. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, uh, I think for actually like they did have camera cars that were race cars mm -hmm. and they were driven by race car drivers. Yes. Like Phil Hill, I know, uh, was one of the guys who operated. I think it was, what is it? I think they had a Ford GT40 prototype that they used for filming, which is insane, actually. Um, and I love that, too. It is just sheer talent and passion. And these people are the best in the world at what they do. And yeah. just like making a movie together and that many creative people working in, in harmony. It's beautiful. And you again then all those years later for Ronan you had 300 uh 
stunt race car drivers and working and professionals for like yeah. an eight minute sequence. Amazing. Yeah. It looks so good. Um, yes. None of this uh, computer, you know, green screen. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Frankenheimer talks a lot of shit. What did he say? Oh, he says, we didn't use any of that computer shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Everything you I see, we really you- did. Punched, uh, you said, you know, some of it like the smoke on the tires was punched up just like a hair, but not, no. Yeah, I think that's the only digital thing that they added. There's like mm-hmm. some smoke from the tires, which doesn't look great, but everything else is for real. Yeah. Um, and it looks good as hell. <laughs> I know. I think in your piece, you said as the actors, uh, like they were sitting on one side of the car and then they installed steering wheels on the other side for the professional drivers. And you said, well, the actors had to like, you know, act it out and try not to have heart attacks, which I thought was a good <laughs> line. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's Natasha, Natasha McElone, I think is how you yes. say her name. Cool. Um, uh, but you wouldn't just imagine... Oh, Natasha McElhone, sure, she's going to play a race driver. <laughs> a she woman is in like, high speed. she looks sweaty. I mean, yes. she just looks uh... like she's going through it. Yeah. Because <laughs> she probably did, you know, have a few panic attacks along the way. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think it was really nerve wracking, even though the person who's really driving is a professional. Yeah, yeah. Um, like to be in that, the passenger seat. And trying to pretend that you're driving and still witnessing what's happening on the road in front of you. <laughs> no, thank I would. You. I mean, she looks genuinely uh, panicked. Yes, and a little green. And I think De Niro looks a little bit cooler, but not enti- like a hundred percent. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he'd rather be uh, doing some some other stuff. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, they were okay. So their right-hand drive models fitted with mm-hmm. fake steering wheels on the left-hand side, so the actors could pretend they were driving. But they had like you know, I think I can't remember the names of. I think Jarier is one of them. He was a Formula One driver. Gotcha. And and Ronin is such a great thriller, and it's one that I mean, everyone talks about that eight-minute chase sequence but there are several chase sequences throughout kind of like uh grand prix has a number of um races Races. throughout the movie ronan they weren't gonna you know you've got frankenheimer here this is what he does and uh (laughs) let's have him do various car chases that work a little bit like a western we have all these standoffs happening yeah i you know ronan is another one that i feel is underrated but i think it also was a game changer Maybe not as much as Grand Prix was, mm-hmm. but um, it. I still think it like, I mean, I don't think the Bourne movies would look and feel the way they do no. without Ronan. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, from the from the palette of the Bourne movies to the yeah. music and to the car chase, it's not just the chases. And um, I think the Mission Impossible Fallout chase also draws a lot from Ronan, too. I think... I mean, before it completely went off the rails, although you and I still enjoy it, but um, some of the Fast and Furious, the early stuff yeah. is taking a little bit, or the grittiness. I mean, you can also say like Mad Max and there were predecessors, but, you know, Mad Max Fury Road at the same time also takes from this a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think Fury, I can't remember if I said this last time, but I do think Fury Road might be the greatest car oh, yeah. chase movie of all time. Yeah. But it's hard, you know, when people talk about, because it's I try basically pick... a whole chase. I mean, 
Yeah. It's almost unfair to compare it to other car chase movies yeah. because it's a feature length car chase instead of like, <laughs> you know, how do you compare that to the eight minute chase in Ronan? It's like, yeah. like a completely different category almost. And when you see like the behind the scenes shots of them, you're like, how did everyone survive this? this? Yes. Yeah. Everyone isn't walking <laughs> around like completely. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. Missing arms, yeah. legs, everything. Yeah. I do think that also has a little bit of um, it's like the Mission Impossible thing where I think they underplay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think Miller was a little bit more upfront about how much digital work there was. But I mean, so many people were like there were it was just 100 percent practical effects. There's no CGI in this movie. And like, <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> if you look at like the behind the scenes stuff, it's clear that there's quite a bit of it. but. Mm-hmm. There's still, I mean, that shit is, it's like. But it's seamless, the the blend of the two, which is what it should be, because yeah. you don't need to risk life and limb to do, you know. But um, but at the same time, there is something about the precision of 300 drivers or whoever who are just at the top of their game working with you. And um, when you're someone like a George Miller or a John Frankenheimer or a Christopher McQuarrie and know how to execute this along with your second units and your, your stunt people. It's incredible. There's nothing like yeah. that. Yeah. I actually don't know what the situation was on Ronin, but I know for Grand Prix that Frankenheimer was like, fuck the second unit. Like there was just, I mean, not, <laughs> not really he, but he had no second unit. It was, a, it was just him doing everything. Wow. Because I don't think he trusted them to do a good job maybe <laughs> okay maybe a little bit of a control freak nature well um, he was probably right considering the time and what people were how and, people were filming yeah. cars like it, if he had a vision it would have been hard to explain comparatively to everything we'd seen before it in film history and i think yeah. i can't remember if this was in your piece or another piece where roger ebert was talking about john frankenheimer like and his love of like cars and miniatures miniatures and painting them himself and um and in the movie i mean uh you know you have somebody talking about ronin characters and these little figurines and history and so it's you know he didn't write the script but there's a little frankenheimer in here too yeah it's what's that guy's is lonsdale i can't remember his character's name Mm. but um he's the one who's like into the miniatures and then he does his little I feel like it's like the his little monologue about the Ronin I think is sort of the yeah the monologue that sort of unlocks the film a little bit I mean obviously it's the it's the uh the title yes (laughs) exactly it is great insight Priscilla (laughs) no it's the audio equivalent of that picture from once upon a time in Hollywood of like you know oh yeah the pointing pointing, Leo the pointing Leo yes (laughs) and I mean the screenplay for this thing is co-written by Mamet using a pseudonym it's great there are some amazing lines of dialogue you know uh this is another one of those movies that I'll say I'm mentioning and Rob and friends will just chime in with a million quotes. And (laughs) yeah, it's It's so quotable. And the ensemble, my gosh, you have Stellan Skarsgård, Sean Bean, just Jean Renault. Everybody is great. I love Jean Renault and he's so good in this movie. I love that like him and De Niro's character love each other. (laughs) 
I know <laughs> they're it's so cute thing. yes um I do you think so I we find out that De Niro is still in the game I don't know why I call the mercenaries in my piece when they're like clearly spies. mostly ex yeah ex yeah. spies who don't mm-hmm. have they don't have anything to do with themselves now that the cold war is over mm-hmm. but I feel like Jean Reno's character is also still in the game that's kind of the vibe that I get Mm-hmm. what do we I think, think so yeah yeah i think you're you're onto something there yeah <laughs> i don't <laughs> think you, he Jen. wants to spell it out completely because that's not a mammity thing to do and no. uh, and also wouldn't work with this movie because it's what's implied like for example Everything. there's a MacGuffin. we're looking for these cases we don't 100 percent know what what's inside considering. yeah it doesn't matter it's like in hitchcock movie well we need the briefcase the documents the the microfilm whatever it is why uh, we don't know it's the ultimate MacGuffin because we yes. just never know there's exactly. not even nobody even pops it open and looks inside and is like oh shit you know like in pulp yeah. fiction <laughs> there's no glowing yeah briefcase yeah. here nobody exactly. actually says oh shit no pulp fiction i just want to clarify i know that but that's the oh shit moment you know <laughs> yes this is an audio podcast we've already established we can't like act out the popping open of the briefcase yeah, so yeah. she said oh shit it's a thing yeah yeah that's yeah. A, that's you know inner monologue yeah but um but I, I think, I feel like the immediate assumption is that what's in the briefcase, or it's not a briefcase, it's like a skate case. But yeah. what's I think in the, the case? I think or it's the... You say it I, Irish, kiss. Yeah. <laughs> what's in I the think, case? Yeah. I think the immediate assumption is that it's like a bomb. Mm-hmm. But I actually read a theory that it's, um, what is the term that I want? Like printing sheets for money, like currency. Oh, interesting. For yeah, the, because for the euro, that way it would fund, you know, um, the different entities want it, like the IRA and the, you know, so it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What's the term? I feel like there has to be a better term than what I'm, yeah, I I feel like I'm on a watch list now for looking this up. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, anyway, dad walks in. there's six people at the door in suits, Priscilla. No. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly I'm living sneakers. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't need to look further into this because I know that the feds are on their way. Um, yes. She's got a <laughs> She's got a buggy. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. This is what oh, I did find what Ebert said about the miniatures, though, because this is very important to me. Yeah. Um, so Ebert wrote that he had assembled and painted the cars himself, he said. Watching his face as the light bounced out from the display cases, I saw not a hobbyist, but a dreamer for whom these perfect little cars represented an ideal world. Oh, I love I that. I know. <laughs> so That's <cute>. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, I think he had, I think they were mostly... The miniatures he had were all Ferraris and Porsches, mm. but and he knew the story of every single one. Yeah, that's what I read too, and I was reminded of your story of when you went to the Lowrider show with that first um, date that took you, and you said, you know, everybody, there's a story with each car and every single thing that was done to this car, and yeah, you can imagine Frankenheimer there, like talking to Ebert. Well, this is a blah 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 blah, you know. 
well, Gus, Larry, and Phil, they're the drivers. No. And like, you can imagine, <laughs> we don't, we're not saying Frankenheimer gave them all backstories, but we're not not saying it either. Yes. I like to think <laughs> Gus, Larry, and Phil are involved. Yeah. Uh, I assume that like the cars were from races. I don't mm. know why I made that assumption, but I think that's what I'm the, making up the story like, comes in. Stories. Yeah. <laughs> Frankenheimer's playing make-believe with his cars. <laughs> That's how I like to imagine it. Yeah. That would also be very adorable. But yes. um <laughs> but I do think it like goes to That's story time with Frankenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> um but either way, I do think it speaks to the point where it's like, it's not necessarily the machine that's interesting, it's the story behind the machine and like, you know. The human being who owns it and loves it and has driven it and the narrative that surrounds the car, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Yes. You're like, um, cut, print, that's a wrap. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm done. Logging out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, I don't know. I just think, and it, it goes back to what I was saying about Grand Prix, where it feels like we're sort of in frankenheimer's little daydream of like a perfect world where you could get in a car chase and everybody else on the road would be a race car driver (laughs) so you're in jeopardy but not like yeah not truly and like you could speed around in a nitro boosted audi you know what i mean like it's just fun (laughs) yeah that's what these movies Um, are yeah but um what other point did oh I wanted to speak to your point before I forget about Mammoth and like I think there's some controversy over authorship because I think mm. the guy who wrote the first draft who's credited I think I remember Zeke? reading that yes mm-hmm. yeah he claims that uh that it it's really his script mm. and Mammoth just did a punch up but I think Mammoth is really um if you know like, Mamet, you know some of those lines are extremely mammity, but at the same time the whole thing um, is mammity. Yeah. At the <laughs> same time, like, you know, the joke is when I watch a Mamet movie, I'm gonna talk like that for the next week. So, you know, the thing that we're doing is the thing. It's the thing that we've done, you know, like that. You can just go back and yeah. forth and be a little obnoxiously mammity for a few days. It's not gonna be as cool as if Mamet wrote it. You know, I've been doing the thing all day. It's always the thing. But we can aspire to that. Yeah, we can. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and I said to the guys what I said, you know, like there's always it's a fraction <laughs> and a fragment and a repetition and a thing and a you know, and you just need Montaigne or you need De Niro or Campbell Scott or you know, my fantasy boyfriend, Ricky Jay. No, I'm just kidding. I love Jason <laughs> Jay. Yes. All these people that can just sing it. Rebecca Pigeon is the coolest. You have Delroy Lindo that do these lines. And in this movie, yeah, they're all great. I don't know. It just feels the whole thing from top to bottom feels like mammoth, though. Mm-hmm. And I'm more inclined to believe. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say this, but Frankenheimer does say himself that that like he said it's mammoth basically yeah. and we didn't shoot a single line of the other guy's script mm. <laughs> which is brutal but i don't know why frankenheimer would say that if it weren't true 
yeah. because I could see Mamet saying like yeah, yeah. script, but why would Frankenheimer? I don't know, but it just, it just feels so much like his work. And mm-hmm. I like that it doesn't treat the audience like, a, yeah, like dipshits, like, Yeah, we don't exactly what we were saying. We just need to know that everyone wants the case. Forget what's in the case. We want it. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. But I mean, it also finds ways to tell you so much about the characters without telling you about the characters. Yeah. And you get that too. I would highly recommend. I mean, it's called On Directing Film, which is kind of, I'm sorry, it is a little bit funny that he... Uh, it turned into a book and he'd only made like one movie because I think on directing film should actually just be called on cinematic storytelling or filmic storytelling because it is one of the best books to read if you're writing a script. And um, but, you know, everybody just, oh, it's on directing. He'd done one movie, maybe two. Maybe he'd done <laughs> things change. I can't remember. But uh, but yeah. Have you read on directing film? I have not. That's why I'm writing it down. Damn it. I was going to get it to you for Christmas. Now I can't. No, I'm just oh, kidding. I fucking blew it. I blew it. <laughs> Not every gift needs to be a surprise. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, I was going to make a joke about, isn't he like really into braise now? Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about that commentary track that Val Kilmer did for, was it Spartan? Mm-hmm. He just like goes in on Mammoth. <laughs> He's so it's a brave different dude now. Yeah. For wearing his beret and yeah, he's kind of gotten a little Val Kilmer and uh, Frankenheimer. There are some stories there. Boy. <laughs> my god, my favorite one is they finish shooting Moreau and as soon as uh it's Kilmer's last scene, it's okay, get that bastard off my set. Yeah. And he Wait, said so... something like uh oh, Frankenheimer. He said that about Val Kilmer? Yes. And he said, there are two things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to climb uh, Mount Kilimanjaro and I'm never going to work with Val Kilmer again. Yep. I've heard stories too. And yeah. I don't want to believe them. You, we can maybe cut this part. I don't know how you feel about it, but like. Um, oh, that period of his life. Yeah. There, I think there's a documentary you can watch on the making of Island of Dr. Moreau, which I heard is just extremely entertaining. Yeah. Uh, it was. God, you're dealing with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. Oh, woof. And you got Frankenheimer, who is also a force. You've got all these big personalities. Yes. Yeah. Um, Apocalypse my... now shit is going to go down. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends is friends with, um, I'm blanking on his first name right now for some reason. Steve. Is it pronounced Cosmatos? Oh, George P. Yeah. So he's friends with his son. Okay. Um, and I actually oh, that don't... guy. No, I don't know. Pan, uh, I Panos. Okay. He directed Mandy. Yeah, Did I was going to say it. Yeah, great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so he was like running around the set of Tombstone when he was a kid, and apparently, like Val Kilmer was a huge piece of shit to him, like mm. <laughs> just really mean. Oh God. And so now I'm like, I don't know. I want to love Val, but it's just like. We're not going to hang with Val. We can love him on screen. From afar. Just, yes. yes. There you that's go. That's what I try to do. But anyway. I know. That's what I cut. say. I am a huge fan of De Niro and stuff. And do you, when you were doing your Ronin research, do you remember this was the time that De Niro got in trouble? 
was I did not this did not come up oh in my research. Oh my god. Yeah. Um Ronan, it was international news and De Niro said he was never going to go back to France. I mean, that lasted 5 minutes. But um it was some kind of uh call girl scandal. I don't know if it was with oh. the Heidi Flies, but like his name allegedly was in a book and it was it was a whole international sex scandal and no no and uh i mean and it's like come on you guys are france like what you know (laughs) (laughs) like really but um i still remember it in my little like suburbia in minnesota it's like why is shocking page news about de niro and some like thing but yeah that kind of stuff doesn't bother me that much no 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 but um Exactly. So when Ronan was out, it was like, oh, that was that whole scandal going on. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't had know. no idea. Yeah. Damn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm doing a deep dive. We're doing a 13 episode <laughs> podcast on Robert De Niro's sex true crime. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like... On order, but like with that, you know, that, that noise. <laughs> I don't know. I think we can agree, though, that this is like De Niro's hottest period. Well, maybe we can't agree, but for me. Oh, no, for sure. I would say like, this was the last. This was like peak after Ronan. Uh, it was like, OK, you know, then. What is he? Up? What is he doing? Then I think I went on to like Edward Norton or whoever was next. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like but I feel like mid to late 90s De Niro was like when was he like looked... peak hot. Unless yeah. you were in high school at the time and you told people you really loved De Niro and they were like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He looked like Copland oh, he when he's sort good. of sh- shaggy with the mustache. Looks good. Oh, really? See, now that was, that was, no? that was kind of like, no. No? Or you Jackie Brown? Copland. Yeah. You know, he could get it in Jackie Brown. But yeah, uh, okay. Wow. We are. We are at war now, Jen. <laughs> Actually, though, he couldn't. He he kills uh, Bridget Fonda. Yeah. Yeah. I. The, oh, yeah. I just want to oh, clarify. Yeah, weird I do not here. condone what Lewis did. This whole thing is getting cut. But anyway. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting canceled for saying that Lewis was hot. <laughs> I know. I'm coming um, soon to the podcast. Which De Niro would you bang? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, how professional should I pretend to be? And then I was like, in my notes, I'm like, for Grand Prix, I was like, these are some of the hottest people I have ever seen in my life. The most beautiful people. Yeah. Yeah. James Garner, Toshira Mifune, and Francoise Hardy. Oh, my God. To me, that's like the holy trinity in that movie. But everybody's hot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is important to add to our film criticism. Yeah, we're professional. Yeah, Yeah, very professional. But, you know, De Niro's hot uh, Ronan and let's see. Natasha McElhone is a goddess. My God. Oh, yeah. She's so pretty. Mm -hmm. And like, I love that. I think we mentioned this a little bit previously, but. Woman in a car chase. I know. So exciting. Um, It feels silly to be like. We need representation in car chases. Yeah, but. I don't want to be one of those people. Like, you know. But you know, when you're a woman who loves car chases, it's just exciting to see we get to drive women get yeah, yeah I know. It's like, oh, we get to play. Yes, I know. <laughs> 
and she leads the she heist too. To go toe to toe with De Niro and Jean mm-hmm. Reno, which is super exciting because it's like, yeah, like I'm gonna try to take down the best actor in the world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's not it's not played in a way where you feel like they're doing it because they're like, oh, we need a girl in the movie. No, whatever, not at all. Which it's, sometimes it's character. Yeah, and it again, just feels mammoth. Yeah. It feels casual, and I love it. Mm-hmm. And um, there's like a little. I see. I'm not the kind of person who. I can't remember what I think we were talking about Jack Reacher, and it was maybe Rob who said that he likes. He li- yeah, yeah. That there was no real romance, but mm-hmm. I don't mind a little romance. So I think I it's think okay. It actually, works really well for this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they don't overdo it. It's just no. like a little bit, and then there's that wistful ending where De Niro is kind of hoping. She'll show up and mm-hmm. I don't know. I think there's a melancholy to it that's really and if it's in with beautiful. the age group and where they are in life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it gives the film a little bit of emotion, like something and respect emotional for, stakes. Yeah. And respect for the people as not just somebody to acquire, but we are two professionals who are following our own ends but we like each other yeah yeah but i mean it's like am i i'm trying to express something that's not coming out right Mm. just that the whole movie is cool and there's a bunch of cool car chases and good action and fun shootouts and things blow up but like there's something about that little understated romance that really kind of brings feelings into the mix i mean obviously jean renault and it makes the people three-dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. Like, their friendship is also very moving, too. Like, I love yeah. that they each save each other's lives. Oh, the um, ending is so great. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. And then the end the when they're still friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, and, and that kind of goes with the romance, too. Yeah. It's, they actually respect what they do professionally, too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They're not just Bond women or Bond girls. Yeah. Even yeah. though we are two people who love Bond movies, but that's not what this one is. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, not to go on a completely different tangent, but I do think like Bond girls don't get enough respect. Like, I know. I yeah. think there are levels of what they've done with women in that franchise. We're not one size fits all. No. Yeah. And I think they each, I don't know, everybody acts like James Bond is like a purely male fantasy but i think there is a fantasy for me in being a bond girl like you know Having i wouldn't necessarily and getting to do things fight on behalf of your country is it spy who loved me and um, oh yeah my perspective is much grosser <laughs> <laughs> go for I it i just think Priscilla. like <laughs> that was very lovely what you said and very nice <laughs> but like for me it's like the James Bond character, I don't know if I'd want to settle down with someone like that. So there oh, not is at all. No. a fantasy in having this adventure with a man who is hot and ostens- Wham, bam, allegedly man. Yeah. allegedly good in bed. And then so we've been told. Yeah, we're not talking from experience here. It's not one of those podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> like James but Bond. I mean, real. Who I mean, who knows? But I mean, the fantasy is that he is good in bed. Yes. And then and then you get to have this little adventure with him and you get to Amazingly, dress. he doesn't have a million STDs and he always practices safe sex and all the, you well, know. We hope. Yes. 
But um, but anyway, but in the, and in the end, you just get to go back home and you don't have to worry about the actual logistics of being with someone like that long term. <laughs> you don't have like the awkward texts later or like, yeah, there's nothing weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you get to go to some exotic location and I don't know, the Bond girls always get to dress really well and have yeah. like great hair and makeup and it's like. I don't know. That's a fun fantasy for women too. Like that's mm-hmm. not just a completely macho. No, I don't know. But They're so anyway, movies. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to disparage the Bond women. There have been some really great ones, like oh my Diana God, Rigg. No, actually, that Michelle is Michelle Yeoh. Obviously, yes. so good. Yes, <laughs> those uh, are actually a whole other podcasts. Yeah, yeah. I why well, when I was thinking about like car chase movies, I was like, is it too obvious to recommend Bond movies? But I feel like there's a a nice little one in On Her Majesty's Secret Service where Diana Rigg gets to drive. Yeah. I like that one. It's a good one. We're recommending but, it, is what we're yeah. saying. Yeah. So anyway, Natasha in the driver's seat is very cool, cool. and yeah. like. Also, she's not the big boss, but the fact that she gets to be in charge of the heist is cool. Um, yeah, she's a shot caller. or And she's also, like, you know, when they need more money, like, she knows to who to call and what's going on. Like, he said, well, for all of us, that was understood. Like, yeah, she knows what's up. Yeah. I mean, even though she's not, like... In she charge like of the, the entire no. Yeah. But I don't think they ever really they never like undermine her authority and mm-hmm. the the men who work under her aren't weird about it. It's just like Yeah. It's cool. I don't know. It's good. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I like I love, it. <laughs> I love both of those films, is what we're saying. If you haven't seen Grand Prix or Ronin or It's Been a While, check those out. Also check out uh, the rest of Frankenheimer's filmography. Uh, the train is awesome. Do you have other favorites? Um, I, mean, I all the big ones, of course. Birdman of Alcatraz feels Birdman. sort of underrated. Seven Days in May is great. Yeah, yeah, and Seconds is insane. Ooh, yeah, in a good way. Mm-hmm. I can't believe the same director made that that made Grand Prix. I mean, in yeah. a good way. I mean that in a complimentary way, for sure. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this, for coming back again to talk about Frankenheimer. So we have two installments. Yes, not running the other direction (laughs) when I'm like, we need to finish, Priscilla. No. (laughs) So thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Have to come back in season five for another topic or several. Yes. Yes, let's do it. Sounds good. (laughs) And closing out this episode on John Frankenheimer, I am so pleased to bring you an excerpt of a conversation that two of my good friends had back in around 2021. This is Donal Logue with my good buddy, Blake Howard. Blake was interviewing people for his podcast on Zodiac, Zodiac Chronicle, which I urge you to check out on his podcasting platform, One Heat Minute Productions. I was honored to be a part of it. And so was Donal. This is before we became friends as well. And Donal graciously regaled Blake with so many hours of wonderful stories that Blake was able to piece them together and dole out different episodes with Donal, including one he called Rum and Rant, 
which was a small spin-off podcast he was releasing for a while. I believe it's called Roast and Rant now because it was mainly recorded first thing in the morning. So uh, nobody was really drinking rum, but it was, you know, it was catchy. It's one of those great Blake titles. So this was released under the banner of Rum and Rant, One Heat Minute Productions. It's Donald Logue talking about working with John Frankenheimer on the film Reindeer Games and his experience working with the legend. So I will let them take it away for you. And thank you so much to Blake for sharing this audio with me so I could include it. And I've heard some of these stories before from Donal and loved them then. And this is an amazing gift to be able to share with you as well. So here is Donal Logue with Blake Howard and I know you will love it. Enjoy. That I did a movie with um, where I met, really became super tight with Danny Trejo. We had met before that. And, and, and something I forgot, as weirdly enough, but I did a movie with Danny called Reindeer Games that John Frankenheimer directed. And yeah, which is, which is a great. <laughs> it's such a, what a wild, which is a fucking what a, wild what a weird and great fuck- movie. John Frankenheimer, what a fucking filmmaker. What a filmmaker and what a legend. What a fucking legend. And I'd heard something that Michael Bay is John Frankenheimer's son. Did you hear about that? That rumor? No. That there was a rumor that Michael Bay was John Frankenheimer's son. And I go, man, that makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> um, I have no idea. It sounds like an urban Look, myth. The, the man, the man, the man who shot Black Sunday is Michael Bay's father. Like yeah. it has to be. Yeah. There's only fucking one guy who would crash a blimp into a Super Bowl. Oh, oh man. man, Frankenheimer. He would also do hilarious shit. Where I'm like, there was stuff that made no sense on Ranger Games, and we had to go back and reshoot it because there was like a scene, for instance, where um, Ben escapes from the hotel and. We go looking for him and he's out. It's I can't remember the particulars, but Danny and I were like, wouldn't he just fucking run off into the woods, you know? And yeah. um, <laughs> I'm like, John, wouldn't he just run off? And it's like, you're trying to be helpful. Stop fucking being helpful, you know? And it turns out months later, they're like, we've got to reshoot this thing that made no sense. And so, so on one hand, John Frankenheimer's like tearing you a new one, like stop fucking trying to be helpful. And then on other, then he's also pulling you aside and being so loving and amazing. And, and then like, we were in the middle of the craziest, biggest stuff. Like, I can't remember. There was so much pressure. And he pulls me aside one day and he goes, Donald, he goes, I have a, I have a Mercedes. There's only 16. There's only 16 they've made in the world. And um, they have a, uh, they have a special little windshield wiper that goes on for the, over the, over the front light and uh, mine broke and I'm such an OCD fucker. I can't, I can't let it go. I can't. And I know that my neighbor (laughs) in Malibu has the 14th of this car and I've got the 16th and I break into his garage at three o'clock in the morning and I steal it. And I'm like, I love the fact you're telling me this story. Why are you telling me this story? You're telling me this, you know, and, and then when I left, I left Ranger games and I went to go do a movie called The Dow of Steve. And then I, I left there to go do The Patriot. And then I left the set of The Patriot in the swamps in that January to go to Sundance, where I got this award for The Dow of 
Steve for acting. And I was coming back from Salt Lake City from the Sundance Film Festival and I was home and then there was like a buzzer at my front gate and I went and it was old school Western telegram. Like I didn't even know they had telegrams anymore, you know, full stop, <laughs> full stop. And it was John Frankenheimer sending his love and congratulations. And I was like, man, John Frankenheimer was in the alley behind the ambassador hotel in his car with the door open, waiting for one of his best buddies, Robert F. Kennedy to jump in after his speech the day Kennedy was, when Kennedy was assassinated, you know? And Frankenheimer had these stories of being in his 20s and being at Madison Square Garden watching Schmeling fight. And, you know, he, he directed Manchurian Candidate when he was basically a young man. With yeah, I mean, Black, Sun, Black Sunday, which he shot, he shot at an actual live Super Bowl. Right. Who can do that? Like some of the, Who gets to do that? The, there is literally no, there would be no filmmaker, not even Steven Spielberg in the present climate that they would allow to shoot a movie at a Super Bowl that was actually occurring for the, you know, for the fact that it might distract the players or distract, you know, for many of the pomp and circumstance. And I'm he shot that. I remember that and, too. And, that was Bruce Dern, right? Bruce Dern is the bad guy. Bruce Dern. But, uh, yeah, he's the bad guy. But, and, and, but it's a, you know, and also at that time he does reindeer games, which is, Incredible. And then, you know, right around that time, he just Ronin. Yeah, he had done, like he had Ronin, done, Ronin, and he had done Ronin right before Reindeer Games. And, so you know, good. the thing is because he had done Grand Prix, right? So I don't think there's mm. anybody in the world that does driving better than John Frankenheimer in a movie. He's just the dude. No. God bless him, man. And, you know, I think that he, he had just gone in for like routine back surgery or something. It was so strange, the circumstances of his passing. He was, and he would admit it, and he talks openly about it, or sp spoke op openly about it. You know, John Frankenheimer was this wunderkind. He directed mm. in the in the in Playhouse ninety. They did this thing back in the, I don't know if it was the forty the fifties, but it was black and white. It was live theater on television, and he was directing mm. that. He directed the Manchurian Candidate. He directed. Black Sunday and stuff. And then he had, he was his own worst enemy. He was drinking hard. His life went kind of and he got his shit together. And he had this incredible second act. Oh yeah. Incredible. His second act of his career, because like, it's, it's hard to reconcile. It's one of those things on IMDb that is the funnest to look at. It's just like, wait, are you telling me the guy who made Black Sunday then made Reindeer Games? It's like, wait, how, how did, how did that happen? Like, how did this, how did this guy make these two movies? He's a fascination. The funniest yeah, thing like, about and, Reindeer um, Games was I auditioned for it. I met Frankenheimer. We got along. And sometimes I don't know if these guys just like me because when you actually audition in the room, you get, to meet each other and you have this rapport and um, I don't know if I'm the right guy for the stuff, but I kind of got the feeling that I was, you know, I was at the audition with Max Perlick. Do you remember that guy, the character actor, Max Perlick? You got to look uh, back, man. This guy is just, Max is one of my favorite. He hasn't really done much in a long time, but he, he was in drugstore cowboy. But, I know Max yeah, Perlick. Yeah, I just didn't know his name. I know his face, of course. So Max I know and I were Perlick. hanging out. Yes. We both ended up having to go leave his house and go to this audition for Ranger Games. It looked good. And then um, 
I was doing Million Dollar Hotel, the Vim Benders movie, Reindeer Games didn't work out. And what I'd heard is they cast Vin Diesel, who at the time hadn't really done. No, hadn't done much I don't at all. Think, Except for maybe Saving, save, maybe save. Saving Private Ryan was 98. So yeah, it's right around that time. Yeah, so just he was in Saving off. Private Ryan because Spielberg or someone saw a short that he was in or whatever. And then, so then they called me, my baby was born on. So I had this four-year-old baby and they said, look, man, it's not working out with Vin Diesel on reindeer games will you can you come up right now to this town in northern canada like by alaska up in northern british columbia and it was so agonizingly difficult but i went up there for 10 days came back to la and then we all we were in um, vancouver for the next six months for the movie but um what a wild adventure that was with ben affleck and charlize theron and uh, danny and gary sinise and clarence williams iii and you know just a wild and Ashton Kutcher in his first day on a film set. And <laughs> it was so awesome, man. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the film intuition, Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.